James, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm pretty sure that you don't need much of an introduction. You've been a veteran independent journalist for at least 15 years now. And honestly, man, it's an honor to talk to you. I'm pretty sure I could speak for all three of us when I say you've been foundational in our awakening process and understanding the matrix that we live in. So in preparation for this interview, we've been watching your three-part series entitled False Flags, The Secret History of Al-Qaeda. And Matt called it riveting, and I agree. It's definitely nothing short of absolutely phenomenal. Your understanding of history and depth of research is second to none. Uh, my head is still spinning after watching these. There's just so much to take in. Now, the amount of knowledge it takes to compile something like this, not to mention finding all the old footage, the names, the photos, the reports, the documents, it's definitely no easy feat. So I guess the first question would be, with Biden's new war on domestic extremism and the war on terror in the Middle East seemingly winding down, what made you decide to focus on the war on terror and its extensive roots? I guess uh, there are a few different reasons for that, one of which is simply the fact that this was the issue that woke me up and that got me motivated to start the Corbett Report in the first place. As people who know my story and my background will know, uh, it was 9-11 was the 9-11 Truth was the thing that opened the door to me to this whole world of information that had been occluded deliberately from my education and upbringing and attention uh, for the first 25 plus years of my life. And so when I started to discover it, it was overwhelming for me. And so it it was, I think, the, the issue that got me into doing this in the first place. And so it is something that I have been studying and researching for at least 15 years, more than that now. And so I, I have a lot of material and information accumulated on it. Um, but as to why now, um, I, I think there is, as you just indicated, there is the continuation of the war of terror paradigm that was instituted on the back of this elaborate myth of uh, the Al-Qaeda boogeyman that was woven over the past couple of decades. That is continuing on now under the guise of domestic extremism, domestic terrorism. They, and uh, to my mind, that is always what this has been about. That has been a core part of what I say and what I think and what I do about this, uh, uh, this subject is that it was always directed at you. It was always about setting up the infrastructure for a complete and total police state surveillance state, whereby anyone who is deemed to be an enemy of the state can be deemed to be a terrorist and thus stripped of any rights whatsoever or any pretense of rights. And so for me, that was always where this was heading. And now here we are in 2022. That's exactly what is taking place right now. And now it is misinformation and disinformation spreaders online like yourself and myself who are now in the cross of this war of terror paradigm, paradigm exactly as predicted. So I think it serves us all to remember where this came from in the first place, why it is a complete pack of lies that has been engineered to bring us to this point, and thus be able to see through not only the war of terror psyop itself, but also every iteration of it that comes out from here on forward, from domestic extremism to the biosecurity state, which I've noted in some of my other work, like COVID-911, you can find it at corbettreport.com slash COVID-911. It, it, it really is a continuation of the homeland security state that was predicated on this Al-Qaeda myth. So I think this is very important history. And as they say, if you do not know history, you are going to be doomed to repeat it. Certainly, man. I listened to a podcast recently that you were on and uh, you mentioned how you made this documentary series to kind of like lay out the facts 
uh, and, and provide people with like this template that they can use to see how everything else kind of unfolds, you know? And, um, <clears throat> after you said that and I, you know, I, uh, and I watched the series, I kind of noticed the similarities between what's going on right now in Ukraine and everything that you had laid out before, like, especially when the, uh, the part or the, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and how we sort of propped up the, uh, you know, the, the terrorist regime in, uh, in Afghanistan at that time. And I was wondering if you see those, like, just like Al Qaeda was trained by the CIA, the Azov battalion and Ukraine was trained by the CIA. And I know you didn't mention Ukraine in your docuseries, but like the, the way that you explained that on that podcast, I was wondering if you see any patterns unfolding like that in the Ukraine. And if you think that this is going to be used like to further exploit and roll out this plan even more. There, I think there are obvious parallels to what's going on today and what has gone on in the past. So you'll note that the documentary starts a couple of centuries in the past, looking at the British Empire and the way that it employed essentially the same tactics, um, using discarding uh, terror groups or uh, Islamic extremists or religious fundamentalists of various stripes as need be in order to essentially put their pieces on the grand chessboard as the uh, the wor- would-be world planners like to call it, um, any time that they need to. Oh, there's there's a reason, there's a strategic re- reason why we need to, f- say, be in Afghanistan. And a couple of centuries ago, that was the great game um, between Britain and, and Russia. And uh, they were strategizing over that particular square of the chessboard. And that's why it, Afghanistan is known as the Graveyard of Empires. Well, fast forward a couple hundred years and you're in the 20th century where, again, the Soviets are trying uh, have strategic interest in Afghanistan and end up essentially the Soviet Union collapses, if not directly as a result, at least partially as a result of the Afghan invasion. And then fast forward a couple of decades after that, and it's the Al-Qaeda boogeyman is the convenient reason to be in Afghanistan. It's it's a strategic square on the grand chessboard, which is why um, why it, precisely why these types of groups are fostered, funded. So supported in order to provide the reason either uh, as in the 80s the Taliban and the Mujahideen are the good guys and there your fight is uh, you're you're with God and God is on your side yay we're with you and the Taliban are coming to uh, the White House for meetings to be lauded by Reagan and all of that and then fast forward a couple of decades and now it's you guys are the boogeyman you are the reason for all evil in the world and that's why we have to be there so yes this is again this is just a template it is just a strategy that is employed time and time and time again and I think we can see that quite obviously in Ukraine, where there is documented uh, CIA and American intelligence involvement since the 1940s, since the Second World War, um, uh, fostering and supporting various groups at that time, obviously, against the Soviets, but now against the the Soviet successors, against Putin, whoever, whatever, whoever is in the State Department's crosshairs, we will use whatever groups are there in order to uh, stir things up and as need be. And the 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 great irony i mean it's not even an irony at this point the the next part of this template um just as al qaeda were the you know we're supporting the mujahideen they're the good guys in the 80s and suddenly oh no you're they're the bad guys now we're after you um one can very much imagine it going a very similar way with groups that are being supported in ukraine that just a few years ago were being called out in the mainstream media uh, even the the main the normiest of the normie sources, New York Times and others, were outright calling the Azov Battalion obvious neo Nazis and uh, calling them out for what they were. But 
now they're the good guys and you're a conspiracy theorist and we'll fact check you if you try to say anything bad about our wonderful, glorious neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Um, and one can imagine, spin it out a decade from now and suddenly it's like, oh, all these crazy white supremacists are coming into the US and staging attacks. They're already setting up that narrative. So um, again, if we understand the history of this, we will see it as it is happening in real time and hopefully reject it this time. Reject it wholesale, en masse. No, we will not have these lies anymore. Yes, yeah, certainly. That's exactly uh, one of the points that I was going to bring up is because I know Whitney Webb has done uh, fantastic work outlining this uh, the precedent being set for the new war on domestic terror as it has been so affectionately been called by the ruling class. Um, even prior to Biden's election, and honestly, even going back to the the Clinton administration, with you know programs like Operation Urban Warrior, running programs for putting Americans in camps and having Americans screaming, "Why are you doing this? You know, why are you taking our guns and food?" And you know, having troops, you know, dry running these sort of operations. But Whitney's done fantastic work, um, really outlining how this is being streamlined and really pushed through the mainstream political aspects of, of things that are going on, the, the mainstream uh, political dialogue that is being exchanged um, for what is going to occur. And as we already know, uh, been outlined in you know publications such as the Libertarian Institute and elsewhere, that there are already noted white supremacists from within the United States that are being allowed to go over to Ukraine and fight alongside these established CIA-trained and funded uh, open as of Nazis, that is certainly going to have a lot of blowback here in this country. Um, and it, it's just concerning to not only the fact that we're watching it happen in real time, but knowing that the ruling class is allowing it to happen because it is exactly what they want. If there is anything positive that we can take out of this, it is the fact that once you put on the glasses, to use the they live analogy, it is, I would say, probably impossible not to see what is happening as it is happening in real time. And that is an experience I know I can relate to. I know I hear it from people all the time that when they first encounter this information and it sends them down the rabbit hole and they, oh my God, it's, it's completely different. But from that point forward, you can see these types of transparent lies as they are developing in real time. You can see it happening. So when you see the fact checkers, for example, all rallying around this demonstrable, easily proven lie, just a few years ago, everyone was acknowledging what was happening in Ukraine. Now, if you acknowledge what's happening in Ukraine, you know, that's beyond the limit. You can't say that. We're going to fact check you into oblivion. You're going to be scrubbed from social media from even for even suggesting what we were reporting a few years ago. Um, it's impossible not to be able to see those types of contradictions once you understand the, the overall narrative. And so I think that is the positive thing. And hopefully, um, I've always understood that the, I think, the most effective way to reach people is probably not about the issue that is happening and playing out in the news today, because everyone is invested emotionally, sometimes with regards to their job or whatever it is, they are invested in what is happening today. But talk about something far enough in the past, and you can more effectively get through those filters that, that people have put up um, around them. So, for example, I've noted that the World War I conspiracy was a, a, a particularly 
popular isn't the right word, but I, I think a hard-hitting peace of mind precisely because that's a century ago. You can talk about World War I and expose, oh, that was a total baloney pack of lies, and people will be more willing to listen to it. Or in today's context, maybe something like the JFK assassination. If you tried talking about that 50 years ago, you're a crazy, not, oh my god, we were, you're a, you're a loony, you're a weirdo. Talk about it today. Um, it, poll after poll shows the majority of the public knows it was not Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone. The, the mainstream media, of course, continue to pretend like that's the only possible acceptable position, but most average people know there was something up there, and they're mo more likely to be able to listen to that today. So, in this context, I think people will be more likely to listen to the War of Terror now that we're out of that. As you say, it seems like Middle Eastern terrorists, uh, Islamic boogeymen, uh, suddenly they're not the civilizational threat, the one and only thing that we have to be thinking about all the time as they were even a decade ago, let alone two decades ago. Now that we're out of that sense of crisis, I think we can more objectively look at it and more people would be willing to look at something like this Al-Qaeda documentary. And from that, I think they put on the glasses and can see through things like what's happening in Ukraine right now. Yeah, great point, James. And that's probably a good reason why a whole industry has popped up around fact-checking recently. I mean, obviously, there's a financial incentive there with big tech and these uh, mainstream social media platforms. And actually, just a side note really quick, I, I got hit just recently with two different fact-checks over a meme about CBDCs. So it looks like that's next on the chopping block, and that's going to be their next target to really control the narrative about. But you answered my question, um, and you suggested that Ultimately, it's a it's a war on the American people, which, you know, I think we all could agree about. At the end of the second chapter, um, you point out that more factors and elements worked in favor of the terrorist organizations than intelligence agencies. And example after example throughout the th third part of the series, you really hi highlight the systemic failure by several alphabet agencies repeatedly over the course of at least three decades. Um, so. Like, what do you ultimately think was the motive or incentive behind these intention of failures or deliberate aid to these known terrorists and terrorist organizations? Was it because they could be used for future fear campaigns or as an internal scapegoat? Or did they actually have this kind of insight and agenda as far as the war on the American people um, and domestic terrorism or whatever uh, back in 2001? I mean, do you believe that that was the agenda in 2001? I think, first of all, I'd just like to make the distinction a little more clearly that there were in intentional failures and then there was deliberate aid. And uh, the intentional failures can, of course, always be written off as as incompetence. Oh, we just didn't. Oh, who could have known? Oh, it, oops, you know, someone was asleep at the switch and they got through somehow, something along those lines. And maybe the incompetence theory is convincing if you listen to one isolated incident of incompetence here or there. But when every single time, at every critical juncture, incompetence, oops, oh, did we do that? Oh, 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 they got through again. Once you line it up, as I do in this five plus hour documentary of point after point after point after point after point of oops, oh, we slipped up, you start to get the idea that, oh, this this is actually intentional failure. And of course, what is the result of those intentional failures is that more power and money 
uh, goes to the very intelligence agencies and uh, security services that so signally failed in their duties. But of course, it is beyond that. And I do show points in the documentary where it isn't just, you cannot even make the argument for incompetence. Oops, how do, oh, oh, they slipped through again. There are points at which there was deliberate action taken to aid these terrorists, right? These people who are committed to destroying the great Satan are literally getting active support from intelligence agencies, militaries, uh, uh, other people around the world. And I point to many examples of that throughout the documentary. Um, Things like the blind shake being literally allowed into the U.S. despite being on a State Department watch list by a CIA agent working in the State Department, rubber stamping his visas, things along those lines that continue to add up and add up and add up to the point where um, in the documentary, I play the clip of Richard Clark, the former counter-terror czar, saying this is, it goes up to the the director of the CIA um, and many people below him actively, deliberately lied to me and kept information from me about Khalid uh, Al-Maidar and Nawaf Al-Hazmi, who were two of the alleged hijackers who were living in uh, the United States openly for a year and a half. The CIA knew it. They deliberately stopped that information from going to the FBI or anyone else in the U.S. government, despite the fact that on the record, part of the official story, dozens of agents knew about it. There were uh, FBI plants in the CIA bin Laden unit who were trying to send this information. They were deliberately stopped from sending this information. Uh, Even Richard Clark says there was a deliberate lie that went on here that they deliberately stopped this. Now, his thesis was the CIA was trying to flip these guys. They wanted to use them for their own purposes. And oops, so 9-11 happened. At any rate, you can make of that what you will, but at point after point, it's not just incompetence. There are points where there are actual deliberate aid going on to these would-be terrorists. And that's important to point out because I think it destroys the incompetence theory of these attacks. As to your question, the core of your question, what was, what was the grand plan? Why were they doing this? Um, I think I, I, I think this type of monumental operation like what we saw unfold on 9-11 does not take place for a singular reason, that there is a singular person with one singular idea, with one singular goal, this is it. I think when we see these large-scale operations that are clearly, um, clearly involve uh, many people having to come together to not only perpetrate the attack or the event itself, but then the cover-up of the event, that there has to be a lot of concord and agreement amongst people who are not necessarily always on the same page. Different sides of the uh, phony left-right political um, uh, paradigm that that are and and things along those lines. People have to come together on this, and that happens when there are many different reasons for that. So when we see a JFK assassination, a 9/11, uh, spectacular events like this, I think there are many reasons. One of which I think was the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, the TSA, uh, the Patriot Act, all of these things that, of course, create this monstrosity, this bureaucracy of of the uh, formalization of the Homeland Security state and the continuity of government government that we know that um, Rumsfeld and Cheney were working on for 20 years by that point, 30 years maybe, um, and that was implemented on 9-11 that obviously uh, fundamentally changed the fabric of at least the nominal governance paradigm of the United States of America, it is a different entity today 
I think, even legally than it was 20, 21 years ago. So uh, I, there, there's reasons like that. There's geopolitical reasons as well. Um, as has been often pointed out, Israel, um, Israeli foreign policy uh, was essentially enacted over the past couple of decades, or at least attempted to, toppling Saddam, going after Assad in Syria, um, the the Oded Yunon plan for the Zionist plan for the greater Middle East to the greater Israel. Um, these types of plans were implemented and the neocons obviously having direct ties to the Israeli government and things like that. Um, there were obvious economic benefits for a number of different players at the table. Um, I've outlined them in documentaries like 9-11 Trillions, um, Follow the Money. So there, there's a lot of reasons, but one of them was the creation of the the war on terror paradigm. And I guess the follow-up question to that could be, well, why? Why would they want to create this, this sort of great dragnet? And that's the answer, that's the question that answers itself. Why does power, why do powerful people, powerful ruling oligarchs want more power? Because that is what they are after. They are after power fundamentally. And the ultimate power is the ability to declare anyone that is against you as a terrorist and thereby stripping them of any pretense of any constitutional rights or anything else that they may have, which is, of course, exactly what happened, not only with the Patriot Act, but all of the legislation that followed it. The NDAA of 2010, for example, that stripped, uh, that allowed uh, Americans, American citizens, to be declared as enemy combatants and stripped of all rights, indefinitely detained without even charge. All of these cr crazy things that were not just being done, as they may have been in eras before 9-11, but were being out in the open, codified into law, is absolutely unthinkable without the types of catastrophic, catalyzing events, to use the Project for a New American Century's uh, formulation, uh, that took place on 9-11. Yeah, PNAC was a big, big, played a big role in that, man. And what I find so perplexing is that, like, it's very easy to prove that this isn't some wild conspiracy theory. Right. There's like this long list of admissions by the FBI, F FBI, the CIA and their involvement in multiple acts of terror over the last like half century, especially at, like during 9-11. Like you had mentioned Richard Clark, you know, and then they had the FBI agents, uh, Ali Soufan and Mark Rossini. I mean, these people were trying to point out that this was going to happen and 9-11 was going to happen before it happened and they were ignored. So it like. It, and and let me just let me just interject. There is so 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 much more than I was able to include in five hours. And when you start to really drill down on the story of Steve Bongard and Dana Corsi and all of these people in the weeks and months leading up to uh, 9/11, who uh, it, it's absolutely incredible. Um, people saying that they're going to fly planes into the uh, someone's going to fly a plane into the world. I'm trying to stop someone from flying a plane into the World Trade Center and things like this. Incredible pieces of this puzzle that I only had time to briefly include a little quotation here and there to kind of give people a window into it. But trust me, there's so much more to it than I could possibly pack into a documentary like this. Well, that's what I'm saying. So there's there's like there's just so much information of of actual people who are involved blowing the whistle. Like and what what do you think causes this blind spot in the memory of Americans? Like it's it's is like it's the establishment media just has this such power over the minds of Americans that that they can just ignore all this evidence. What what do you think is behind that? 
Well, I think I think you've just hit on it, actually. I think that is the answer to the question. So uh, I also, this year, in addition to releasing the third part of the Al-Qaeda series, I also uh, released a documentary called The Media Matrix that people can find at CorbettReport.com slash media, where I go through the history and the, the near future of uh, the concept of mass media and how um, how the Gutenberg printing press really did change the game fundamentally for how power operates in society. Because before that point, it was relatively easy for um, ruling oligarchs to control information um, that's doled out to the masses. You would have the texts, the sacred texts even, but they would be the special... Um, the, the special purview of the 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 monks the the uh, the, the the royals the court the, the 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 educated classes would be able to basically steward over those texts and tell people what they meant you know the average working person wouldn't even be able to read so they would have no access to this information the printing press completely changes that paradigm and for the first time starts to widespread literacy starts to take off and people start to be able to not only read widely from people all over the world and different viewpoints and different things that they would never have been exposed to otherwise but also even to get their own word out there and and it's an incredibly important part of things like the American Revolution, which probably would not have happened without the printing press and without the, the pamphlets and newsletters and common sense and things like this that were getting out um, to masses of people. The average person suddenly had that power to widely distribute information. It absolutely revolution, revolutionized not just the society in Europe or, or more broadly, but literally the human species, civilization as we know it today, um, largely rests on that. And as I point in that Media Matrix series, throughout the, uh, the, the centuries, there were various attempts to clamp down and censor the press and sometimes successful, less successful to different um, extents. But the way that they really, the, the ruling oligarchy really regained control of that information oligopoly was by essentially corporatizing the press. And this was done, uh, this was enabled by the technological developments that took place in, say, the 19th, early 20th century to the point where the ability to access the press was out of the hands of the average citizen. Whereas a couple of hundred years before that point, you could you could pay a, a printer relatively easily um, to, to print up a newsletter or a pamphlet or something and then get it out to the masses. But as, as the technology starts to develop and you get the rotary press and these sorts of things, incredibly ca capital intensive, suddenly it starts to consolidate around first the, the big newspaper barons, um, who uh, the the Hursts and others who could who were uh, largely usually rich uh, people who inherited from their father some some newspaper or some radio station as it, it started to become in the early 20th century and it started to consolidate around them. Eventually, you start to get these boards that have to operate these gigantic networks and it becomes this corporate thing. And by the end of the 20th century, you had almost total control over everything that people were hearing, seeing, and thinking on a daily basis. It is hard to overstate the amount of media control that existed at that zenith of the television newspaper paradigm, where if you knew anything about the world, it was coming from a handful of corporations that carefully gatekept that information. 9-11 took place, I think, right at that zenith of information control where perhaps for the first time in human history, um, information was 
almost exclusively limited to what a few corporations were allowing you to hear. Um, just fast forward a few years after that, and the World Wide Web really starts to blossom. Um, internet as we know it, and the, the the various social media platforms and other ways of getting information out to the masses really started to develop. And that's when you start to get this flowering of this, I think, Gutenberg 2.0 moment of this flowering of information in the average person, some nobody, Joe Schmo sitting on his uh, living room in Japan can start a podcast and literally reach millions of people around the world. It's crazy. It's a crazy time to be in. Um, so I think that, that information control that existed on 9-11 uh, really did truly limit people's ability to to know any of this stuff that I'm putting in this documentary. Uh, you could get bits and pieces of it here and there, but it was extremely difficult. It is orders of magnitude easier in, twenty say, 2020 to get this information and assemble it and compile it than it was in 2001. It's it, But it is getting hard once again, because as I know you guys know, um, but let's state it clearly, the censorship regime is coming in and cracking down and start starting to cut off this flow of information. Obviously, uh, I'm not on YouTube anymore. Things like this uh, that are stopping this information from getting out to people. So I think um, we are heading potentially back into a type of information dark age and one that may even be darker than the one that came before because of the type of control that is now available to really and truly control information at every level. It is getting to the point where uh, I don't know if we'll be able to escape that type of control if we allow these bars of this digital digital prison to close around us. But that is why I think this perfectly documentable out in the open information, most of the stuff I am citing in this documentary comes from official documents and records and officials um, saying this. This isn't, this isn't crazy out there, total speculative nonsense. This is absolutely 100%. This is official story type of stuff, but you have to dig in order to find it. And uh, back 20 years ago, who was doing that kind of digging? Very, very few people. Yeah, most most certainly, and and I I will say because I'm I'm such a, a frequent watcher of yours, and I, I'm one of the segments of yours that I really enjoy is the solutions watch, and just how to how we can really empower not only ourselves and each other, but to find solutions to sort of break out of this uh, this control paradigm and this panopticon that they are encircling around uh, society. I, I do concur in one way that we are edging closer towards this new information dark age on the flip side however i also think we are very rapidly uh, approaching much quicker than the previous iteration of perhaps a, a gutenberg 3.0 situation whereas now there's so many people that are uh awake and have already been uh, presented with so much information to recognize the lies of the ruling class and the American empire and just the, the globalist establishment, uh, corporatocracy in general, that we're already seeing these companies like BitChute and Odyssey and Rumble pop up essentially immediately when these big technocratic oligopolies decide that they want to attempt to control speech. So I think that's a really positive thing that we're seeing, that there's an acceleration, it seems, of consciousness of people what I believe to be just the inherent fire and desire for freedom in the human spirit itself really 
expressing itself in these sort of situations, like we saw with the uh, the COVID nineteen eighty four lockdowns. I was honestly very inspired by just the incredible amount, not here in the U.S., obviously, but around the world, other countries uh, who stood up and week after week after week continued to defy and protest against so many of these lockdowns to the point where um, early in, in the, the COVID crisis, I was actually reporting there were documents from the World Bank that showed they fully intended to keep lockdowns and and all of these restrictive mandates in place until at least 2025 fully. And I, I think that it is partially because of those massive uprisings that eventually, you know, we got to where we are now, to where most of these countries have already repealed uh, essentially all of those guidelines. So if there's any silver lining to that, I would say it does seem as though that thankfully because of that Gutenberg 2.0 moment that you would reference that now so many people have been introduced to this information and continue to introduce others to it, that we are on an accelerated rate to at least attempt to fight back against what we're, uh, what, what we're seeing them attempt to, to finalize. Well, let me, let me paint in the dark cloud underneath that silver lining <laughs> because I don't, I, I don't fundamentally disagree with what you're saying. I agree 100%. We are, technologically, we are at the point where we really could fundamentally break free from systems of control that have existed at least for the past half millennium. Uh, when we look at the uh, the Gutenberg revolu- uh, revolution and then how that was clamped down on by trying to censor the printing press and what have you, we are at the point, technologically speaking, where information really and truly could be free, absolutely free. Um, at, not in the free as in free beer sense, but free as in free out there. It could be uh, uh, spread to the four corners of the globe very quickly, very easily, um, with a minimum of friction. Decentralization, decentralized networks, uh, Web 3.0, these types of things are technically possible now. So yes, awesome, but it is a choice and a choice that needs to be made consciously by a public that understands the stakes of what is happening now and uh, the the reason that we need to, at times, inconvenience ourselves in order to bust through the, the, the strictures of control, which will always be presented to us in the most convenient way possible, because in whatever iteration of the Matrix that we're on right now, the, the sixth reboot or whatever it is, to use the Matrix analo- analogy, um, the, I think the people who want to control society understand, you just make all the systems of control very convenient for people and make it very inconvenient for them to switch over to something, some other paradigm, some other system. Why would you do that? Oh, don't... Uh, it's such a bother. I just want to, uh, I just want my pizza and beer and sports and go back to my life. So people will choose more often than not the wrong way. And we have many examples of that from uh, just the past couple of decades of ways that we could have gone, but mostly did not go. Here's a case in point that's, uh, that's very relevant to the day that we are recording this here in October of 2022. Uh, suddenly it's trending and sweeping through the uh, the uh, independent media sphere that, hey, guys, did you know PayPal is this horrible, corrupt corporation and they claim to be able to censor whatever they want at any time? We should all cancel our PayPal accounts. Great. Okay. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I don't know why this is a newsflash to anyone, but yes, PayPal is a horrible corporation. A- actually, every single banking entity that is allowed to operate on 
internationally like this is going to be part of the global cabal at some level. I hate to break it to people, but that is how this works. If only... If only we had some form of some sort of peer-to-peer way of transacting with people that didn't go through the banking system at all, that we could be our own banker. Oh, that does. That has existed for at least 13 years now. It's it's called cryptocurrency. But everyone in the independent media sphere is Mr. Galaxy Brain, who's, oh, that's a psyop, and oh, we can't do that. No, I'm going to continue to transact through the banking system, whereas complaining that cryptocurrency and other things that could be a way around, uh, that's all a psyop. That's, oh, they're just going to turn it off. They're going to turn off the internet. So you'll lose all your crypto, don't you know? Um, So uh, we have to convince, not just convince people that it is worth doing. And that's a bit of a fool's errand anyway, because you can lead people to water. You cannot make them think. Um, So uh, good luck trying to convince people why it is necessary to have freedom. Um, But uh, more fundamentally than that, they have to understand what it is, what the systems of control really are and how they operate. So another example of that that's relevant to today, you mentioned Rumble as one of these platforms that come online that, hey, guys, we're the, we're the alternative. Come, come over to Rumble. Rumble is YouTube 2.0. Rumble is YouTube. It is a centralized structure of centralized servers in which they are going to control uh, th- this process. And don't worry, guys, we'll allow you to say whatever. You can talk about COVID. You don't have to use code words and things on our platform. Yay. At least for now. At least as far as you can trust the owners of Rumble, right? These. Uh, so what? Why are we moving over from YouTube to Rumble? Because they are going. These masters are going to allow us to speak in the way that we want for now. Yay! And so we'll sign up with their terms of service. But wait, no. There are ways that we can do this without having to go through centralized servers and control. But again. I, how many people in the general public are even aware of this issue, let alone working towards it? So I, I, I'm 100% with you. It can be done. We really can break through these st- structures of control, but it's going to be one hell of an uphill battle getting people on board with this. And that really needs to be, I think, though the most pressing thing for people in the independent media who are concerned about these issues, we have to be ringing these bells as loudly as we can and getting in people's faces about this. No, no, we are not going to continue going through centralized systems of control that are just designed to trap you in the next iteration of the Matrix. We have to break out of that altogether, and it's going to be inconvenient at times, and there are going to be stumbles. And absolutely, you maybe, maybe you're an idiot and you put all of your entire life savings in some in in this particular crypto and oh no god that crypto just tanked and i've lost everything well okay maybe there are smarter and less smart ways to do this type of transition and changeover but we need to start doing it yeah all wonderful points james and uh yeah it, i think it's just that problem that people aren't paying close enough attention you know i, I think uh ultimately that's kind of the backbone of the problem here but i, I do know that you pay enough attention to, to know that we got censored actually four years ago to tomorrow. Uh, we lost nearly 6 million fans when Facebook and Twitter took us down on the same day. So you're preaching to the choir here, but all the best, you know, I, I think that's uh, important to remind our audience. Now, um, of course, the crypto skeptics are annoying as well, but I don't want to get too far off course with the, the 9-11 discussion. And um, I have a, a question here specifically because we've been talking to a 9-11 Pentagon first responder. 
And I know near the end of part two of the series, you discuss some of the skills of the hijackers who supposedly hit the Pentagon with the jumbo jet commercial airline. And from all accounts, it basically sounds like it's completely uh, a farce. It's there's no possible way they could have done that with your investigation and all the time and effort you've invested into this. What do you actually think hit the Pentagon? Was it a missile like many claim? Let me preface this by first saying that for people who haven't watched the documentary yet, I really encourage you to do so to see that this is, well, first of all, it is not a 9-11 documentary. It's an Al-Qaeda documentary, um, which is kind of a, a broader picture. But to the extent that it obviously centers on 9-11, and 9-11 is the sort of centerpiece of the documentary, it is a documentary that is about a, a, a sort of the everything else other than hey, those buildings sure did collapse funny, because we have had two decades of a 9-11 truth movement that has talked about nothing other than, hey, those buildings sure did collapse funny, or hey, that hole ain't big enough. Um, that is the only thing that people in 9-11 truth seem interested in at all, which to me is mind-blowing, because as you can see from this five-plus-hour documentary, it is about so much more than that. People focus on the particular operational details of this to the point where it is absolutely the only thing that people investigate and miss absolutely everything else about the actual significance, not of that one particular day, but how that one particular day nexuses into a literal centuries-long conspiracy. I think that's a much more interesting story. But if you want to get into the speculative weeds of the operational details, my answer to what hit the Pentagon is, I don't know. And anything else other than that would be, would be speculative and would be a lie. Um, so I, if I, if I st straight out said it was, it was this, it was that, I do not know what hit the Pentagon. There are convincing arguments to be made, uh, for this or that, um, operationally overall on, in terms of 9-11, uh, I lean towards something like an, uh, the type of plot that was talked about in Operation Northwoods, where the CIA literally said they were going to create fictional characters um, they were going to have you know, students and others basically go onto planes um, as, hey, these students want a competition to go uh, take a trip to, down to South America. And they were going to get onto planes or a plane uh, that was then going to fly off. And, you know, there's a lot of press coverage about it. Then they were going to land that plane at an Air Force base or some other um, uh, military uh, installation, take off a CIA drone that was dressed up to look exactly like the passenger plane, fly it over Cuba, blow it up midair while broadcasting fake pre-recorded messages over the radio. Hey, Mayday, Mayday, we're under attack and blame it on Cuba. That, that entire scenario was painted in the Operation Northwoods documents in 1962. And then 39 years later, you have 9-11-2001 unfolding with these planes that, hey, and they're broadcasting, uh, you know, we've got some planes and all of this. And then they fly in ways that mo uh, multiple pilots attest absolutely could not have been done, even by skilled, experienced pilots. But no, Hani Hanjor was the one doing this 270 degree corkscrew turn to come exactly level with the ground in a way that uh, other pilots say is absolutely impossible. Look, do I know what happened? I do not. But does it make sense that there were some sort of drone whatevers that were being uh, remote control piloted? Perhaps that has to do with the uh, the uh, the, go the ghost plane or whatever it was called that was flying over um, Washington that day. Um, that that is literally the nuclear doomsday plane that they use to maintain operational control. Uh, all of these things 
fascinating stuff. I've talked about it before. I've talked to Aidan Monahan and others who have done research along these lines that I think is fairly compelling. But do I know what hit the Pentagon? I do not. I like that, man. I I, I agree. Uh, I tend to agree with you on that. The we do like as a as a alternative media in general tend to focus on that one specific day. Those the, you know the the three World Trade Center towers in New York, and um and it's it's weird. It's like it, I guess it's just it was something easy to focus on, you know. I, and and we I mean here at the Free Thought Project, we've certainly you know devoted many 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 articles to to those very small details, you know, and that. That's what's so, so amazing about your documentary is that it just opens this up to, you know, like this much broader thing when like the first uh, installment, you know, where you started like a century ago or two centuries but, you know, with the with the royal, the British royals and their influence in the region and then them dying. And like, do you think that this entire like the, the U.S. hegemony right now that we currently are under and see expanding do you ever see the U.S. empire collapsing and maybe this power coming, going to somebody else? Like when it came from Britain to the, to the, you know, further West to the United States. And then do you ever see like the implosion of the American empire and perhaps like this power transferring to somebody else like China or maybe Russia? Uh, yes. Yes, I do. Um, so for people who are unfamiliar with my work on geopolitics, I would suggest they check into my work on on 3D chess, how to play 3D chess and other articles and, and podcasts and interviews that I've done on this. I definitely think that there is a, uh, a ruling oligarchy or a power structure that is not singular. It's not monolithic. I don't think it's one group of people who meet in one smoky room and decide every event that's going to happen on the planet. But I think there are interests that converge around the idea of creating some sort of global governance structure or a new world order, to use that phrase. And I think um, that involves, that will involve the end of American uni unipolar unitary hegemony over the world. And we're already starting to see that switch over happen. There is now the name that is being unveiled for the public for the next iteration of the governance control system for the planet. It's it's no longer going to be Pax Americana. It's not, not going to be all of those institutions that were set up post-World War II to create this overarching infrastructure, financial and otherwise, for the globe. It's not necessarily going to be the UN or the IMF or the World Bank or the world reserve currency being the US dollar. It's going to be a multipolar world and we're going to have the, the One Belt, One Road initiative and the BRICS countries and uh, all these other ideas, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the Asia Development Bank, these, these types of things are going to start to reconfigure that um, post-World War II um, uh, 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 structure of control. But it's, I think, going to be the same thing in the end. In fact, perhaps even worse, because I think we will start to see a consolidation of even more global power into even fewer hands that will be even, not only even more unaccountable, but even more opaque. Um, because at the, I think, again, to use that, that matrix analogy, and they keep rebooting the system so that it will be more and more effective at controlling people. And I think back to a thousand years ago, it would have been pretty easy to understand who had the money and power and influence in society. It's that guy living in the castle on the hill who controls the, the knights and others who literally control the vassals and servants and takes uh, a, a portion of our, our crop every year. That's the person with the power and control. But 
reboot that system and reboot it and, and reconfigure it. And now suddenly, oh, don't worry, guys, you have the power. You get to vote every few years and you can kick the bums out when you need be. And and no one no one's really running anything. Oh, there's no that's conspiracy theorizing. No, there's no real power. It's just whatever. Don't think about it too much. And yeah, of course, of course there are the billionaires you can point to. But there's a lot of people with power and influence who don't get written about or don't get on the Forbes rich list and things like that. So hmm, I wonder where they fit into the power structure. And then once we get to this multipolar world order and everything's taking place behind the scenes in institutions that you're barely even aware exist, not just the Bank for International Settlements, but then it's subsidiary organizations and, and things that are creating the white papers that create the infrastructure for the, uh, the uh, multinational uh, CBDC infrastructure and all of this craziness that's coming into view, it's going to be a system of worldwide control in the hands of very, very few people. And that will mean, that will mean the end of the world that you and I grew up in and have known all our lives, which is the world where, of course, America is the world superpower and what they say goes and the dollar is the world reserve and all of that. Now, again, this is difficult for people to understand because clearly there are I would say the majority of people in sort of the mid-level management positions in this global structure. So people who might be in governments, national governments, for example, or in national militaries or in certain in corporations, in sort of mid-level functionary roles, they are going to be operating in the same paradigm that you and I understand to be the paradigm of uh, these nation states that are at war with each other. They believe it. But I think the people at the top level of this do not care about the United States or any other particular country coming out on top. They're concerned about their, not just themselves, but their generational wealth and power being preserved and expanded into the future. And whatever, whatever carcass of whatever um, convenient host that they have to invade and then um, uh, destroy and then emerge as some sort of you know new creature to use the parasite analogy. Uh, they're going to do so, and I think the United States has been the convenient host for this um, this parasite, uh, these psychopaths for the past 75, 80 years. But that time is coming to an end, and I think the writing is on the wall for that. So um, there's a, there's many ways that this could play out in the coming decade or two. Um, one of which I think, which would in a sense be the most hopeful in a, in a in a horrible way would be oh it's just going to be another kind of cold war scenario like the previous cold war scenario which by the way newsflash for anyone who doesn't know was totally contrived complete ginned up fake funded on and supported on both sides by the same players um as so many conflicts throughout history um at the very least, start with, but you don't necessarily have to end with, Antony Sutton and his work talking about the creation of that, the best enemies money can buy, uh, essentially, which was about how the Soviet Union and the commies were propped up and, and, and fostered and funded and essentially kept, uh, perpetuated by Wall Street and the financial interests that kept that system going for as long as it did. Um, but now there's, the new iteration of that, and you look at China and the exact same sorts of technology transfers and other things that enabled the Soviet Union to become at least a somewhat quasi-credible competitor to the U.S. hegemony in the uh, in the mid-20th century is now taking place in China in the early 21st century. So we can see the same script playing out. And as I say, in a way that's hopeful because at least the Cold War 
didn't really turn hot, and we didn't have the all-out nuclear conflagration in Armageddon and all of that. It was essentially a big, long con on the public to, of course, expand the police state at home, the Red Scare and all of that, but also, of course, to uh, line the pockets of military contractors and others who ka-ching, ka-ching, uh, laughed all the way to the bank with that particular scam. So maybe that will be what plays out over the next couple of decades, and the U.S. will ultimately retain its position throughout that time and still be the world superpower, but uh uh-oh, watch out for, you know, China, watch out for Russia. Or it could be that actual hot war scenario where it really does go totally crazy, and World War III, as I've said many times, will look absolutely nothing like World War II. It will look like no other kind of warfare that's ever been seen, because every time this, this sort of grand global warfare is rolled out to the public, it is in a completely new paradigm. And who knows what kind of autonomous weapons and uh, weapon systems and uh, satellite warfare and who knows what else will be rolled out at that time. Cyber warfare, financial warfare, um, uh, 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 psychological operations that have been perfected to the point where who knows, again, what types of microwave weapons and whatever else can be wielded against the population. All I know is it will look nothing like warfare of the past. It will be crazy if that does eventuate. And if that does eventuate, I could very much imagine that the long-held quest of many people in powerful positions in the establishment to eliminate vast swaths of the human population. The numbers vary depending who you ask, but ask someone like Ted Turner and something like, oh, say seven-eighths of the human population need to be eliminated from the earth. Get rid of a cool, you know, seven billion people. We have a billion people left. That's that's enough, right? Um, This desire for depopulation really does exist in very uh, powerful and influential people in society. And if they go for the hot war scenario, maybe that is what they're looking for. Uh, So I hope people understand the stakes of what is taking place right now and really understand the hour of the time that we are living through. Because I've pointed out before the eerie parallels to the build-up to World War I. Um, I I did a lecture on that in Denmark a few years ago called Echoes of World War I that I would invite people to take a look at. Um, I think there are also parallels to the build-up towards World War II. And we are living through, I think, fundamentally, we are living through a changeover in world reserve currency in financial paradigm. And go throughout history and take a look at the times world reserve currency changes over. It doesn't change over happily and peacefully. And everyone just agreed to start using some other form of currency or something. No, no, no. Generally, that involves mass scale slaughter. And the previous example of that, of course, World War II establishing the U.S. world reserve currency paradigm. Um, so who knows what what sacrificial offering is going to be made to the, the gods of finance in order to accomplish the CBDC coup that is coming. But I'm not looking forward to it. At, at any rate, I think we need to be prepared for what can be coming. And again, we do have a part to play in all of this. Um, But it has to be made through conscious intention. We have to understand what is happening and why we need to fundamentally change the way power is operating in our society. Jeez, James, I feel like we could talk about this all day. Unfortunately, we're uh, getting close to our wrap point. But along those same lines, this might be a bit of a broad question, but we always try to wrap our show talking about solutions. And obviously, you're a wealth of knowledge here. Um, right now, social media censorship is at an all-time high. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, you know we've been targeted over the years by big tech. 
What would you suggest people do to fight back against the regime and upend the empire? And I know we talked about like the decentralized social media platforms, but what are some bigger picture solutions? And, you know, you don't have to go too uh, extensive on this, but just uh, some solutions would be awesome. You know, it's it's interesting because I am now at the point where I'm going to offer uh, the sorts of solutions that are way more drastic than I think a lot of people are thinking, which um, fundamentally is finding ways to unplug from this matrix altogether. And uh, by which I mean that, yes, as I've talked about, there are decentralized uh, Web 3.0 types of solutions and more decentralized social media networks are possible and ways to spread this information via the internet really could if we make the right choices for the right reasons and concentrate on decentralized networks, we really could have a peer-to-peer internet the way it was intended to be by depending who you ask and what particular planners of the internet, which of course started out as the ARPANET as a literal US military uh, creation. So um, I think we have to be careful about who we lionize in in the story of the creation of the internet as well. But the idea of a peer-to-peer decentralized network fundamentally could be, as I say, that Gutenberg 3.0 that totally blasts us off into another stratosphere of of uh, essentially winning over this oligarchical parasite uh, class that has been ruling for centuries, millennia, perhaps. Um, so yes, absolutely, yes. But I think uh, one of the things that I am most concerned about on sort of the macro level, again, if you go back to that Media Matrix series that I did, or I did an online course on mass media a history, it's a, a six-hour lecture series that is uh, available now, newworldnextweek.com, if people are interested in it. It is, not, uh, it is not a boring history. It is absolutely vital to the times that we're living through. And in the end, starting to look at the next iterations of this technology, because we're not staying here. Whatever you think the internet is today, it is not going to be that 10, 20, 30 years from now. It is going to be fundamentally different. And that is going to be shaped by the types of technologies that we now start to see and start to laugh at. Oh, look at Mark Zuckerberg's stupid metaverse thing. Oh, it's so dumb. Who would do that? Uh, in the exact same way you could imagine people looking at the internet a couple of decades ago. Oh, pff, oh you spend your time on the internet? What a stupid... Oh, you're a nerdlinger. Oh, we're... Uh, I guarantee you that this technology will change and will improve and will become more and more sexy and be sold as the next must-have item. And, oh, what? You don't have the, the Google glasses or the the Apple brain chip or whatever is coming along the line, it is coming. And I think we need to fundamentally re-examine what this media technology is and how we are using it or it is using us. And what control do we have over this? And are we giving up fundamentally the human, the human experience, the human species are we transforming from Homo sapiens into Homo medius? Are we becoming some sort of different animal based on this technology that we are starting to incorporate increasingly closer into to the point where is it going to get into our body? Well, if the rulers of the world have, have their way about it, they certainly would like that to be the case. So I think we need to fundamentally re-examine our relationship to media altogether and perhaps the answer ultimately is to live as authentic human beings in the real world, at least more so than we do today, um, where 
at, we're at the point, I cannot remember the, the number off the top of my head, but I believe it was a few years ago, uh, the average amount of time that the average American adult spent in mediated experience reading reading books, haha, <laughs> who does that anymore, uh, scrolling through their Insta feed online or whatever the, the equivalent is, but something like 11 hours a day is spent in mediated experience. That is insane. That's incredible. We are not living in the real world anymore. We are increasingly living in our devices. So yes, there are Web 3.0 things that we can talk about and, and promote, but long term, do we want to continue heading down that road where everything we do is centered around internet and, and online experience and eventually metaverse experience? I would say no. I would say at the very least, we need to really think carefully about the, the types of choices we are going to be making in the coming years about how we live our lives. So very true, my friend. Wonderfully said. Do you want to make any plugs? Of course, you know, the corporatereport.com. I know is your main hub, but is there anything else that you want to promote to our audience? Uh, I, if we're talking about the Al-Qaeda documentary, I would just encourage people to watch that specifically. And as with all of my work, you can get it 100% for free. You don't have to sign up for anything or do anything. CorbettReport.com slash Al-Qaeda, A-L-Q-A-E-D-A, -A -A will take you directly to the documentary all three parts, the entire transcript is there, 50,000 plus words, hyperlinked with literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of links to all of the source documents and books and things that I'm talking about so that you can check on every single thing that I cite in the documentary. The audio and video downloads are there 100% for free. Please check that out. Um, please use that as a resource. Uh, I, I, it, I hope people can appreciate it took a hell of a lot of work to put that together. So I hope people will use that as the resource that it is intended to be. If you do want to support the work, I highly, highly encourage people to check out corbettreport.com slash members, which is where you can go to find out how to become a member of the Corbett Report. And that gives you access to precisely zero special insider information because I, I keep nothing behind the paywall except for an occasional subscriber video, which is basically just me walking around talking, rambling about <laughs> daily life and other things. I keep no actual information behind any type of paywall because I am committed to doing this. This is what I do. And at the point where I can't do it that way anymore, oh well, I guess I'll have to go back to teaching or something. So literally this material is made possible by the people out there who support it. I couldn't thank them more highly enough for doing so. So I, I would say if you if this is the first time you've ever heard me speaking, please do not try to sign up or become a member or anything. No, no, no. Just go and look at the work. At the point where you realize you want to support this work and you want to see more documentaries like this in the future, please go to corporatereport.com slash members. How many hours did it take to actually make it? How many hours did you log? I I don't log, so I really honestly could not say. Um, I, I guess I would have a log if I went back through um, my video editor, Brock West, who, who did all the visuals side of this documentary, and however many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours he put into it. Um, hundreds of hours on my side, um, just writing the script itself. But then who knows how many thousands of hours when you took, because obviously this comes from 15 years plus of research that I've done. So... I, I couldn't even begin to put a number on that for you. It's an incredible documentary, man. Like I said earlier, like Jason said, I told him earlier that it was it was just riveting. This is, I mean, it. it I didn't want to turn it off. It's just so well done. 
I mean, it could be on Netflix. I mean, it should be on Netflix. You know, this <laughs> needs to be seen by everybody. So if you're if you're listening to this podcast, you know, like after you get off of here, go to the CorbettReport.com forward slash Al Qaeda and check this documentary out. You you might just binge watch it all like we did. You know, it's it's really good. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, I uh, I watched the first part literally right before we got on here. I finished it um, about ten minutes beforehand because I've been meaning to check it out already. I can tell you, I was pulled in immediately. And even me, as someone who's studied nine eleven for over a decade since I was a freshman in high school, I still learned things that I never heard before. The the Ali Muhammad story I'd never heard before, and I was like, "Holy crap! It's even deeper than I thought." With ten years experience in this, so definitely check this thing out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, My jaw it, was on the floor most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> it, it made me uncomfortable for sure, and I think that's a good thing because it, it really highlighted how deep the rabbit hole really goes when it comes to this. So James, you're a legend in every sense of the word, a national treasure, and your your documentary is a three-part masterpiece. I highly suggest everybody in our audience who hasn't watched it yet, definitely skip Netflix or the sports ball game and watch this with a friend or a loved one. They're definitely very educational. And I'm partially convinced you don't sleep because you're so insanely prolific, James. <laughs> but uh, Don't get enough. Let's put it that way. That's true. <laughs> you're a true truther OG, and we're certainly grateful for your time and work. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for uh, for watching the documentary and helping to spread the word. As you know, I think this is important information and it needs to get out to more people. So thank you for doing what you do.